Starting Your Own Business is this perfect incubator for a mental health crisis. I had gone from waking up and having phone conversations with someone every day and waking up and having accountability and motivation and that like mutual exchange of excited energy and suddenly I didn't have a routine. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. and welcome to Let's Not Talk About It. This is a podcast that does talk about it. We're going to unshush, take the lid off and get rid of the stigma around the trauma that currently keeps so many of us silenced. And to do that, we'll share stories from ordinary people overcoming extraordinary struggles. I'm Camille Tudy. I'm Sharon Tiger. And I'm Amanda Ziede. And we are your hosts. Hello, ladies. Something I want to talk about before we jump into Jessica's episode is work burnout, especially during the pandemic. So we haven't really touched on this topic much, and Jessica's story covers lots of different angles of mental health, but something she talks about is measuring her success by how many clients she has and how much money she's making. And obviously that's really important, and that's how we succeed. The pandemic has been really eye-opening in that we are prioritizing mental health and self-care because it's been really hard dealing with a global pandemic while also trying to work and be normal and host meetings and do all the things that we're usually doing in life. I pulled some statistics from the CDC and that the Kaiser Family Foundation also branched off of. During the pandemic, mental health and substance use have grown, including concerns about suicidal ideation. So in January of 2021, 41% of adults reported symptoms of anxiety and or depressive disorder. And a survey from the year prior in June 2020, which if we can remember was only a few months after the pandemic came about, the statistics said that 13% of adults reported new or increased substance use due to the coronavirus-related stress. And 11% of adults reported thoughts of suicide in the past 30 days of when the survey was held. So I just wanted to talk about the importance of prioritizing our mental health, whether we're in a pandemic or not, but then also balancing that with work. I know we have lots of jobs and side jobs and things that we do. And I think Jessica just brings a really good topic to mind that at some point, even if you are just launching your career or starting a company, you need to take that break or focus on that, especially if you are feeling extra stress and anxiety. I think it's so easy for any of us to get caught up in what society has defined as success or what societal norms are. It really takes effort and practice to extract yourself from it because you have this whole identity that you've built around. I went to school. I got this job. I advanced. I got this promotion and all these people need me and I have a team and all, all these things that when you finally shake loose of it, you kind of lose your identity a little bit about what success is. And you can feel a little bit of guilt, like, wait a minute, I'm not working like nine to five. For me personally, someone doesn't own my time anymore. And yeah, I can go for a walk and not feel guilty about it. And those types of things definitely have helped support me through this is to take those mental health breaks, to go for walks and to find ways to connect with people. But accepting that those connections are very different in a pandemic world. I mean, everyone's life has turned upside down with this. It's the ways that you normally connect with people or you meet your girlfriends out. And now it's a question of safety for me and my family. And so I have to think of other ways to connect. 
And I think employers have a real responsibility here and need to step up frankly, and make it okay for employees. And some of them are, and those conversations are beginning to happen, but we have a long way to go for employees to be human and be able to share openly. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about what we do here is we have to normalize the discussion of it and realize that we bring our whole selves to the office. And some of us, we just have a lot going on. So I mean, it's real. I want more talk about it. I want it normalized. And I want to see employers have resources and not put a stigma around an employee who may be struggling with their mental health. 2020 was a shitty year. The pandemic happened. My mom got a cancer diagnosis. So some of you know, I flew to Sweden to be with her. And thankfully, her cancer is actually in remission. But I spent three months first with her trying to just get through the pandemic in Sweden and then dealing with her diagnosis. And before I left, I actually asked my doctor for Xanax because I knew that my mental health would be down the drain. I have generalized anxiety disorder, so I'm already on long-term anxiety medication. But I knew that I would, without any doubt, experience those like peaks of anxiety. So I got six pills. (laughs) But while all of this was happening, my business was growing. I've never had a more productive year than I had in 2020. And sometimes I feel awful for sharing that because I know so many people were laid off or they were fired. So I had to juggle my business, my anxiety, my mom's diagnosis, And honestly, the only way I got through it was, yes, medication, that helped a lot. But self-care, I would go to the gym. I would take really long walks with the dog. I would go to the spa. I just know that I have to take care of my mental health or I can't be a productive CEO. Sharon, you mentioned identity. Yeah, we have our identities wrapped up in what we achieve. But also, I have pressure to pay the bills, pay the mortgage, things like that. So when you are your own boss, you can't just not do work or call in sick because you don't get paid. So it's a lot to deal with when you don't have like a regular nine to five. And Luckily, I was able to make the best out of it, but I know that so many people were struggling worse than I was. Yeah, we tend to associate being successful with not only the amount of money we make, but also how busy we are, right? Oh, I've been like so busy this week. It's great. And as Jessica alludes to, she has so many clients lined up in the next few months. Her business is taking off, but yeah, I agree. It's hard to balance taking care of yourself while you have to take care of also everything else that helps you with like your bills and your finances. And we also had to take some measures over the past 18 months to put our mental health first. We, we moved out of DC and lived out of an RV for a month and a half just to get out and explore and see things in a COVID safe way. That was our prioritizing mental health during work and making sure everything is still taken care of. And I think it's so important. And I don't think I would have ever done something like that if we all weren't experiencing this immense pressure and fear. We had no idea what was going on and who would come out safe and healthy and with the job still. With that said, let's get to our next guest. 
On paper, Jessica Manuzak has totally got her shit together. She owns her own marketing agency called Verve and Vigor Copywriting Studio, and she's written ads for companies like Nike and Levi's. But beneath the surface level image of successful client bookings and cash flow, Jessica was chronically, mentally, and physically sick. In fact, and you'll see this on her website, she says her business almost nearly literally killed her. Jessica tells us a story about how she learned of her bipolar disorder diagnosis, how she admitted herself into an inpatient mental health facility a week after she started her first company, and how she spent the last seven years rewriting her brain and taking care of her body. You know, this has all led to Jessica's passion for advocating for mental health. And since then, she's founded a free mental health hub for freelancers called I Love You, The Monsters, and even launched the Freelancer Failure Ball, a black tie gala celebrating the screw-ups. Stick around because after our conversation, we will be talking with licensed psychotherapist, Dr. Boatin, who will share practical tools and resources. Hi, Jessica. It's so great to have you on the Let's Not Talk About It podcast. I've been waiting for you to be a guest on the show. I'm so glad you accepted. I'm so glad to be here. I've been waiting to be here. So this is great all around. Super, super. So for our audience who may not know Jessica, here's what you really, really need to know. Jessica is a very successful entrepreneur. She founded Verve and Vigor, a copywriting and marketing business that works with major international brands. And she's also founded I Love You, The Monsters. And so these are all wonderful, wonderful successes. But before we dive into those things, what I wanted is to learn a little bit more about Jessica as a little girl. What was childhood <laughs> like for Jessica? Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Yes, I sure did. Yeah, I won my first writing contest in the fourth grade for a nonfiction essay titled Daddy, Please Don't Leave Me. And my grandmother had it framed on her fireplace mantle the day that my dad packed up and moved across the country and gave up his half custody rights. So yeah, I have always been a writer. It has always been my way of processing through my own internal world. As a lonely kid, lonely kids read, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a reader, of course, writing was a natural extension of that. And then I went on to major in creative writing and poetry in college I'm a published poet. I am a published writer. I, of course, now I'm like a copywriter for a living, for marketing. So yeah, writing has been in my bones since I was born, for sure. Wow. Were you shy as a kid? What were you like? Were you curious? I am rediscovering as a grown-up the things that I actually was as a kid. Because I think we have these innate qualities when we're younger that get muted or that we tuck away because we're told we should. And like, it's only now as I'm entering into my mid thirties that I'm finally in a place where I can look back and be like, oh, I was very curious. And I was really afraid of showing my curiosity. Yes, I was very outgoing and I was afraid of being the center of attention. And so most of these fundamental traits of my personality were tempered throughout my life by fear and self-consciousness and this ever-present danger of punishment that if enough people look at me, that means I'm doing something wrong. So that's been a big journey. Young me was more similar to adult me than they were to kid me, if that makes any sense. I know that's a weird thing, but who I actually was as a kid doesn't align with my personality. 
the way I showed up as a tiny human was so muted. Oh, that's interesting. It sounds like more connected with true yes, who you are. That's the word. As opposed yeah, to, totally. But, but muted is a great way to describe it. It's like you were tempering it because of, yeah. the, of how that would yeah. be perceived and potentially being yeah. perceived as wrong or bad. It's not just because of my upbringing. It's not just because of familial dynamics. It's also just the nature of being a person in the world. Mm -hmm. I was a chubby kid who got bullied. I was the nerd who like read faster than everybody and nobody liked. So I don't want to paint this very clear linear picture of, oh, I was afraid because parenting. Like, no, I was afraid because the world is fearsome sometimes. No, that's very real. And I think that's something that happens. That's one of the gifts of getting older, I think, is you learn to shed some of those things through work or just through time. You learn that, at least from my perspective, life is short. And it's like, why am I allowing these things, these people, these fears to get in the way of my fulfillment? And then you just start to say, yep. eh, screw it. <laughs> I'm, yep. I'm going for it. <laughs> yep, that's the one. So. Knowing your passion for writing, I want to talk about when you launched Verb and Vigor, because I think by okay. everyone's standards, it was a huge success. It was every Thank entrepreneur's you. dream to be what you had shared is that you were booked out six months the day you opened your doors. And that's externally, Yahoo, wow, wonderful. But <laughs> there were other things going on internally for you. I remember just for context, like sitting at my dining room table the night that I'd opened my business. And I was fortunate enough that clients had signed on with me. And I was talking to my partner and I was like, oh my God, can entrepreneurship really be this easy? Right. <laughs> and then like, that's when the Jaws theme song music kicks in and it's all over. It literally was the next week that I checked myself into an inpatient mental health facility. When we think about kind of the trajectory of that, Starting your own business is this perfect incubator for a mental health crisis. Even though I've been freelancing and I've been a contractor, like under a mentor in the industry for years, I had gone from waking up and having phone conversations with someone every day and waking up and having accountability and motivation and that mutual exchange of excited energy. And suddenly I didn't have a routine. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. As trite as it sounds, I like wasn't drinking enough water and slowly but surely, it's almost like my groundedness unraveled. I was so chaotic at the time that I just had no idea what else to do. And that admission process was really the thing that catalyzed everything that's come after. My business wouldn't exist if I hadn't done that. I don't know that I would exist if I hadn't done that. So... Yeah, so it's an interesting thing to have everybody say yay, 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 and to read those messages congratulating you as you're in the intake bed in the hospital, right? Waiting for them to place you in a facility. Yeah, it's like the polar opposite of what people think or expect yeah. is going on. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned the incubator effect of missing some of the conversations, not necessarily on a routine or a pattern. What did success trigger for you? To make you make the decision, I need to be inpatient. I need to take care of myself. Something needs tending to here. A lot of things. I think for many of us, our self-worth and our self-esteem is inextricably tied to our business and especially our finances. In the entrepreneur community, we so often perceive people who maybe don't make six figures as not being successful. And I certainly bought into that. 
And then you add in, of course, all of the emotional things that come with money and success. I grew up very poor. I had a teen mom, all of that stuff. And so it also felt weird to, I mean, at that point I was, I don't know, 25, 26, maybe it felt weird and made me feel guilty to think that perhaps I was externally succeeding in ways my parents had not. It felt like I was doing something wrong by pursuing my ambition because I didn't want to make anybody else feel bad, which is a weird thing to say. I don't mean to make it sound like I'm like the most ambitious, successful person ever, but that was certainly on my mind of how will it change this family narrative if I suddenly go after these things that I want. Fortunately, that wasn't a problem for me because when I checked myself into inpatient from the bed, I called my mom and told her, and she said, this was the biggest mistake you've ever made. And I never talked to her again. And it's been six years. So (laughs) whose mistake really was that? Was that the first time that you felt like you had struggled with your mental health? No, never. It was the first time that my partner had lost patience for my struggle with mental health. I have been with my partner for 16 years, nearly 17. And I had had a very tumultuous, emotional response to a lot of things growing up. I had a really hard time regulating my emotions. They kind of leaked out everywhere, not always kindly. He had weathered it all. And I use the term weather because sometimes it felt very much like a storm. My feelings would very much feel like a storm. And I remember that particular day, I had just gone into the hole and had these horse blinders on where I couldn't find my way out. And I remember he was standing in the bedroom and he just looked at me and he was like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, oh shit, if you don't know what to do, then like I better figure this out. It was like a come to Jesus moment where I was like, well, this person is more important to me than the tantrums that I've built my life around. Not only does he deserve better, but I do as well, of course. And so, yeah, that was a big catalyst for it. Wow. So 25, 26 years old, do you view that favorably as an early intervention opportunity, if you will? Absolutely, because I see a lot of people in similar online spaces as I am who have a decade on me who are just starting to do the work that I feel like I've already reached. I mean, the work never stops, right? But I feel like for a lot of it, I've already compiled this compendium of the tools that work for me. So yeah, I am really grateful. It even makes me more hopeful that I think the generation underneath of me is even more aware and that they will likely with things like emotional regulation disorders that have such a dramatic ripple effect, not only on your life, but of the lives of the people you love, they'll be able to get in there and it'll be easier to rewire it because they'll have those young little neuroplastic brains, right? One of the things we always ask each of our guests on the show is what was your it's a Swedish saying, what was your offer kofta moment? Which offer kofta translates to victim cardigan. Not that every one of our guests has ever feels like a victim, but it's really just to signify what's the changing point. What was the pivotal point? And it sounds like maybe that was it when in your mid-20s oh, yeah. you started your business yeah. and your partner looked at you and said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And it was just the, I've never seen that look on his face before or since. Yeah, it was very surreal. That was that pivotal moment for me. And also my physical health was really rapidly deteriorating and I knew that they were connected and that I'd have to start addressing one for the other to get better. And I don't know that it necessarily would have mattered in that moment, which I had addressed first, 
but I knew that between those two cataclysmic areas of my life, one of them had to give and quickly. I think what's really admirable is that you did take a pause after starting, starting your own business is I would imagine it to be very scary. You don't know if you're going to succeed and how you're going to work through all the challenges that come your way when it's just you. When you decided I'm going to stop or slow down with this business that I just started to work on myself at such a young age, was it scary? I mean, how did you make that decision to just put that on hold for the time being? My body and brain made it for me. I had reached a point of crisis where I was not functional. And during that time of my life, I would go... My intensive outpatient was from eight to one. And so I would drive and I'd go and I'd get home at two usually. And I would get horizontal on the couch and I would watch Mythbuster reruns until I was tired enough to go to bed. And that was literally my life for months. I didn't have a work mode. I could not have rallied. And I think had I done work for clients at that time, I would have lost those clients like for good because it wouldn't have been decent husband would come home and we'd eat store brand box mac and cheese and he'd make our own salad dressing because we couldn't afford salad dressing. So it wasn't some noble decision to care for myself. It was like, well, there's not any other choice anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> So it wasn't perfect. I wish it had been more graceful, but of course that's not the way life works. So what did you learn about yourself and what are some of the tools and the resources and things that helped you What helped you emerge? It's not like sexy or novel, but dialectical and cognitive behavioral therapy work. With emotional regulation, DBT was actually developed to help people learn distress tolerance, learn communication skills, learn regulation. And so after I got out of the hospital, I then went into a intensive outpatient program where for five hours a day, four days a week for six weeks. I drove for 45 minutes and paid way too much money to sit in a room with a facilitator and fill out worksheets together and do the lame exercises. And really it was like learning these fundamental tools of being a human that I think so many of us never learned as tiny people. My toolkits aren't anything exceptional. I challenge my negative thoughts. Of course, the standard DBT exercise where you write, here's the negative thought here's the worst thing that could happen. Here's the best thing that could happen. Here's what's likely to happen, right? And you do that enough that your brain just starts naturally working through that whenever you challenge something catastrophic. So that's obviously helped with like self-esteem, my motivation, my driving anxiety. And it's not seamless. Nothing's perfect. Some days, none of my tools work. But most of the time, I have something I can rely on effectively. It took time though to get there. One of the things that I love about you is how open you are and real about it being messy and there is no perfect because I think so many people struggling need to hear that. It's not a switch where things go from bad to everything's good and it's an ongoing process. But I know you had a lot of challenges around navigating the right therapist, the right type of therapy, and even getting an accurate diagnosis. I know it took a lot of advocating on your part. A big part of it, kind of my first obstacle, was that the first male therapist I saw told me I was depressed because I was overweight. And I'm like, well, that's not helpful for me. So then I found somebody else. And after I had gotten out of outpatient, I was therapized out. I was burned out. I was sick of doing the work. At this point, it had been like months and months of doing this work. 
At that point, we were like super broke because we were paying for this therapy program and I was too sick to work a bunch. So I launched this business, had to let go most of my clients because I was too sick to work with them, to serve them well, which of course right out my pipeline. But after that, I decided, well, I don't need a therapist. I know these tools now. So I decided I was going to go straight to a psychiatrist. Oh, well, if whatever, I just need something to balance me out. I need help sleeping and I need help waking up and I need help lowering my anxiety and I need, you know, <laughs> upping my motivation until pretty soon I was on this cocktail of literally over 20 medications, some of which were there to combat the side effects of other medicate, you know, and it was just this cluster. And this woman was a lot older. She didn't seem to respect my experiences with the medications very well. I'd go in with case studies, like literal scientific case studies being like, hey, I am not the only one with this side effect. Here's what the research shows us, how it interacts with chemicals in the brain, which is why I feel this bad. And she'd just look at me and be like, well, that's not a thing. Partially, it was my mistake because I was pursuing a psychiatrist as if she was also a therapist. And those are, while they have overlap, are fundamentally different skill sets. So I went into her as if she was my therapist and I felt in crisis and I had my horse blinders on. And she looked at me and she said, well, you either need to drive yourself to the hospital right now or I'm calling the cops. And me who just came in to be like, I'm really sad and overwhelmed. I was like, excuse me, what? And she was like, those are your two options right now. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go. What? And at this point I'd been told I had depression, anxiety, type two bipolar, seasonal affective depression, complex PTSD, adult ADD, blah, 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 blah. And so I go into the hospital and they bring me to this back room and I'm very aggravated in a nonplussed way, like resolved. And I'm ignored and ignored. And eventually the nurse comes back and goes, oh, we just talked to your psych doc and she says you have borderline personality disorder and this is just what you people do. You can go home, we're discharging you. And I was like, what? I was like, what on earth is borderline personality disorder? And the nurse looks around and she's like, your doctor didn't tell you. And I was like, nope. Borderline is one of the most stigmatized mental illnesses out there. It's getting a lot better, but outside of schizophrenia, anything that has personality disorder at the end tends to eke people out a little bit. And I remember going back to her and being like, hey, bitch, why didn't you tell me I had this thing? And she was like, oh, I did. And I was like, my therapist is gaslighting me right now because I would have remembered a new diagnosis. I had been searching for an accurate diagnosis for over a decade. Of course, that's not something you would forget being diagnosed no. with. It's one of the things that we've learned from talking with our guests. We had Sulame Anderson in season one, and it took a long time for her to get the diagnosis of borderline personality because there's still a stigma even in the mental health community about making the diagnosis, yep. which is unfortunate. And many therapists will not work with borderline patients. Therapists will let you go, will release you if you have borderline because we're seen as being more difficult. And in some ways, yeah, of course we are, but like we're, well, so yeah. We do, we do us, thing. yeah. How does borderline personality manifest for you? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it. Yeah. I'd like to qualify this by saying that nowadays, not a whole lot. I have been doing so much work over the years that two and a half, three years ago, my therapist was basically like, Jess, you emotionally regulate better than most clients I've ever had. I can't be like, you are cured. But like, as far as I'm concerned, this is not something that's causing these effects in your life anymore. 
So nowadays it's a lot more gentle. My cycle before, the way I describe it is borderline is like having an ill-equipped car. We all drive down this road of life and there's all these speed bumps and divots and whatever. And we drive along and we're like, oh, that's kind of bumpy. Oh yeah, speed bump. I don't like speed bumps. I'm a little motion sick. When you have borderline, you don't have shocks in your car. So when you hit those speed bumps or those divots, you're like bottoming out and scraping the stuff out of the bottom of your car. And you look back and all the insides of your car are strewn down the road. And you're like, how is my car still running? When everything just hurts so much more intensely. This manifested in a push-pull cycle where I call it porcupining. And that's what I tell my partner. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I know I'm porcupining. Where I would need the tenderness but I would like put out the spikes and get extra aggressive and sometimes cruel in order to try to force the narrative that I thought I deserved to be left, right? Oftentimes people with borderline overlap with severe abandonment issues. And so for me, that's really how it shows up. If I like used to get a whiff of any sort of perceived abandonment, it's almost like physiologically I would get drunk. I wouldn't black out, but it was almost like I would get in this headspace that was very peculiar. And I was almost always aware of it, which was also interesting. I'd be able to tell my partner, I'm having a borderline episode right now and I can't get through the glass. I can see emotional me and there's logical me over here and I'm banging on that window and I can't talk to her right now. Now, most of the time I can talk to her. Not always, but most of the time. One of the other things that I want to be sure we talk about today, because I think it's such an important point and it's something that you've spoken about is the perpetuation cycle of trauma. I think there are a lot of things that come into play with that, where of course, stigmatization perpetuates things because if we don't bring the dark secrets into the light, they stay dark forever. And so if we're not talking about them, we're not working on them. If we're not working on them, we're not improving them, et cetera. Simply stated Our brains are very stupid, simple machines that can do very cool things. But at their core, they're very lazy. Our brains want the path of least resistance. They want the comfort, even if the comfort comes from predictable discomfort. It's the same reason that kids in foster care still go back to their abusive parents. It's a weird safety thing when you know what to expect, I think. That makes a lot of sense to me when you learned about your diagnosis by accident. How did you then take the necessary steps or take control of your journey afterwards to learn about your diagnosis and treat it and handle it? I Googled so many things. (laughs) I went home and I Googled and I Googled and I read every Reddit form I could. But at that point, the consensus was that there was no cure for borderline. If you had borderline, you were a monster, you were manipulative, you were malicious, you ruined lives. I found one book on Amazon by a woman who'd written about how she had basically cured her borderline through years of dialectical behavioral therapy. I went in at that point, I had fired my psychiatrist because I did not respect or trust her anymore. I'm still currently working on tapering off an old school medication that she prescribed off label that has ruined my physical health straight up. Eight years later, I'm still dealing with the repercussions of her professional irresponsibility. I couldn't afford therapy because we know mental health and the healthcare system. So I went on Amazon and I ordered the Dialectical Behavioral Skills Workbook, which is what most therapists 
recommend you work through anyways. Every day I made sure I did a page every day, every day, every day. Because I started slowly getting better. My business started slowly getting better. And then I was able to really prioritize talk therapy, cognitive therapy. And like, it wasn't comfortable. Like we sacrificed a lot for me to go to therapy. And I wish it didn't have to be that way in our society, but I'm thankful that we were able to do that. So current day, Jessica is doing some amazing work. You have it on your website, but tell the audience, you have, I love you, the monsters. Tell us about the name. Yeah. So I love you. The monsters is a free mental health hub, primarily on Instagram. We have a site, but free mental health hub with like data backed research on mental health as it applies to freelancers and entrepreneurs specifically, because we know that as entrepreneurs, we're 10 times more likely to have substance abuse disorders and go to inpatient. We're six times more likely to have ADHD, all of these weird things that create a self-perpetuating cycle. So I love you. The monster started because I text my best friends that I love them the mostest and my phone auto-corrected mostest to monsters. And I was like, yep, that's a company. <laughs> and so it was like, Right at the start of the pandemic, I was just entering into a tumultuous, interesting time in my long-term marriage. And I was like, this is what I need. I'm sick of all this wellness advice being like, shove crystals in your bra, which like I love, I love a good crystal. But at the same time, I wanted them to be like, shove crystals in your bra if you're a freelancer and here's why. And first of all, I love your work. I love what Verve and Vigor does. I love, I love you, the monsters. Love everything about you, Jessica. We just align so well because- the goal of our show is to normalize discussions about trauma. This is my thing. This is the hill I will die upon. I want this movement to be my legacy. I don't give a fuck about my copywriting business. I want freelancers to feel more comfortable being whole humans in their businesses. Yeah. That's it. That's all I care about. Yeah, because that's and my dog, was, but like whatever. You see on social, and I think this is something even we talked about as what's teachable in marketing is that you wait until you're through the storm and then you put it in front of everybody with a nice package, little bow on it. And that's just not reality. So let's get real, <laughs> right? It's never reality. We all grew up reading the Odyssey and all of these hero journeys. We even look at Harry Potter or Star Wars. And then the story we're always told is that, well, our hero, who is a very good person, clearly, without a doubt, a good person, no bad qualities. They have one bad thing happen that is big, but it's just one. And then they overcome it. And then they're happy forever and ever and ever. Amen. What it looks like is you have one bad thing happen and then you get discouraged for months and aren't sure if you can try to do another thing. And then you do. And then it's a very unlinear growth trajectory. I think that's really true. Before we wrap up, one question we like to ask our guests is, are there any, what we call surprising gifts, things that you attribute to having gone through the things that you've gone through, experienced the traumas, what are the gifts or the positives, if there are any that have come from it? I think about this very often, actually. I trust myself more than most people I know. I know that the darkest I go, I am still going to be safe and I will always recover. At my darkest dark, when I was mythbustering for nine hours a day, I used to tell my therapist, that I was afraid I would do something I couldn't take back, that I would get in a fever or a space and like black out and just kill myself, right? That's the message here we're talking about. I was afraid that I would accidentally kill myself. And that was the words that always went through my mind. I'm going to accidentally 
kill myself. And I told my therapist and she looks at me and she goes, Jess, when's the last time you've ever done anything on accident? Because <laughs> my therapist is lovely. And now I've had her for five or six years, but that was really reassuring. But now I think it's knowing that I can really go to my darkest corners and be okay. The other one is I physiologically feel things more intensely, which means I am an exceptional writer and a very compelling poet. I have that raw emotion always under the surface. It used to feel like my blood was carbonated because I had so many feelings all the time. And now it's more of like a grounded well of feelings that I can sort of tap into, like dip into instead of having them like rush out and spill out all the time. What an incredible description, carbonated blood. I love it. And then the, you know that feeling that like, uh-huh. Yeah. I kind of felt that when I you lived. said it, I was like, yeah, what's that like? I used to live there. It was real uncomfortable. I'm going to burst. I always think to like the Mythbuster time and husband was a bartender at that point. And so he was working the 2am shift or whatever. And I was just primarily alone Every night I would open the sliding glass door in our apartment so I could hear people walking by on the street. So I would feel less alone because it helped me get out of the tunnel to like hear people walking their dog or whatever. I think it's such an interesting thing to be able to look back and be like, yes, that was absolutely my lowest time without a doubt. And of course, at that point, I was also grieving the loss of my family, right? That's when I had divorced my mom and her side of the family as I was healing. So it was a whole cluster. It was very weird. Just resiliency. That trust creates resiliency. <laughs> I love the word. You come back resilience. from that, anything's possible. Yeah. I love the words hope. I love the words resilience. I love all of that. Is there anything that you want to share that would be important to share that we might have missed? If you think that you need therapy and you think that you need help, don't assume you can't afford it. Don't assume you can't find someone because, yes, therapy is expensive. Yes, there are wait lists. Everybody is talking about this and it is not definitive. I keep seeing these memes where people are talking about, oh yeah, I make therapy accessible because it's hundreds of dollars a session. This is discouraging people from asking their own questions, making their own phone calls and figuring out what they can do for themselves. I negotiated an out-of-pocket rate with my therapist where I pay $70 a session, right? It's cheaper than if I get processed through my insurance. Don't get discouraged by the logistics do your own research, make your own phone calls, ask the uncomfortable questions, make sure that you're showing up for what you need. And if you really can't afford therapy, go get a workbook. Go get, <laughs> go get a workbook. Go get Google, Amazon <laughs> workbook. To your point, I have seen my friends do just what you suggested and outside of insurance or just being persistent, checking in yep. to see if something has opened up. That yep. type of advocacy, I'm glad you shared that, so... Thank and it sucks. Like, I wish we didn't have to do all of that, but there are ways to work around it right now while still getting the care that we need. Well, thank you so much for being so open and sharing a little bit of your journey. Appreciate you. such good interviewers and holding space to have these sorts of, I'm not going to say they're brutally honest because I don't believe that honesty like this is brutal. I think it's just honesty. So thank you for holding that space. Jessica's story recognizes that money and job status doesn't equal success at the expense of mental and physical health. And you can still love yourselves, screw ups and all. We're thankful she shared her story with us. And next we'll talk with an expert who'll offer information and context around trauma. Our expert has never met Jessica, and this isn't meant to diagnose and treat 
but to help us understand trauma better. Hi, Dr. Button. So good to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. You too. Glad to be here. So we're going to talk about burnout today, which is very relevant, especially last year and this year. Have you made any observations or in your experience, have you seen that entrepreneurs tend to share any characteristics, whether that's professional drive or work mentalities, work ethic, or even personality traits? Yes, I think this is a great topic. We are all dealing with a bit of burnout coming mm-hmm. through a pandemic and are continually experiencing what the pandemic has left us. But entrepreneurs, yes, there is a special, I think, level of passion and self-motivation, creativity and The idea that entrepreneurs deal with such a high level of pressure, they're good under pressure. They have a high risk tolerance, and that means that they're able to take risks without feeling too much of the impact, which is a good thing, right? It helps them to be able to start businesses or launch brands or to believe that their business is better than the next business, right? So there's a bit of risk tolerance that entrepreneurs have, but that also equals challenges that they might experience. So their ability to face challenges head on with the belief that they have the capacity to overcome the obstacles can sometimes come with a cost, And that can be high levels of stress tolerance. I believe that I can do this. And so let me just keep going and let me just keep going. I'm stressed, but let me keep going. Lack of boundaries between home and work. We've all experienced that. So those are some of the challenges that an entrepreneur might face, as well as extreme commitment to their craft. That is a blessing and a curse, right? That you are so committed (laughs) that sometimes there's a cost to that commitment poor self-care and an awareness of their own personal limits. They may be so committed to the brand or the business that they might not even see that they have passed their limit of exhaustion. There's more stress than other people. We know that in some of the research that we've experienced. So their vulnerabilities to mental health concerns are just quite unique. As you mentioned, we've all been dealing with a really challenging time. At what point do we recognize or see that we are having a problem or we are struggling? So what are some of the early signs of mental health instability that we should be aware of? Especially when you're running a successful business, you've launched something great and things on the professional side are going great, but personally you're just struggling. Well, humans really can move about life with a great deal of predictability in our personality, our schedule, our lifestyle. We kind of like what we like and we have some rhythm to what we do. So when there are significant and sustained changes to our ability or level of functioning, that's when we begin to dial in and understand and notice some of these shifts. So shifts like a loss of passion. You're so excited to launch this brand and now you just don't even wanna do it anymore. You don't wanna even get up in the morning and, and attend to the tasks that are around you. A little bit of that I think every entrepreneur might face, but when again, it's significant and sustained in the shifts that you're experiencing. So the loss of passion or pleasure in the things that you're experiencing, a withdrawal from social engagement or a social isolation, when you are taking yourself away from the things that allow you to have outlet, have support, 
It could be a party. It could be the friends that you typically go and relieve energy with. And you don't even want to do that anymore. That's a significant shift. When you have extreme stress, extreme stress sometimes can manifest as physiological issues within the body. It can be extreme exhaustion, fatigue, not being able to catch up on sleep. That chronic fatigue over a long period of time has uh, really significant detrimental effects on the body. And so when you begin to see these shifts in your personality, in your engagement and outlet, and then also in your body, you want to make sure that you dial into getting support. One other thing I think that entrepreneurs may not significantly think is a challenge, it's increased substance use. If you are doing fantastic work in the daytime and you have to take two shots to go to sleep of alcohol or some other substance, that's not healthy. And so that is a shift in your functioning because you're not able to now rest without assistance. Relational conflict can be one of those. You're often taking out some of your stress and pressure on the people around you. So these are all shifts that signal some form of mental health disturbance that can be something to dial into. Is burnout an actual diagnosis? Burnout is not a DSM-based, which is our diagnostic manual. It's not a diagnostic manual diagnosis, but it is a diagnosis of exclusion sometimes, meaning that we look at the work-related issues that you might be dealing with or the family issues that you might be dealing with, and we can say that you are experiencing burnout to the degree that we would put that on your medical chart. Maybe not so much, but it would be something that we would look at as causation for treatment. How can we be more aware of work burnout and how can we actually prevent it before it happens? Is there anything that we can do to be proactive? Yes, so our awareness is important. Be aware of your limits, be aware of your boundaries, be aware of your level of functioning that is predictable. So often we may not be aware of what it is that we need. And then when we've crossed our limits, it's too late. And so if you are in a situation where you more often than not feel that the task that you have in front of you, you can't accomplish, that's a problem. If you're overwhelmed to the degree that you're physically unwell, that's a problem. And so your awareness is preventative to be dialed into your body and your brain and how it's being impacted by your work is the best prevention. There are other things that you can do too, and I think I'll list a few of those that would be helpful. Take note of the feelings that you're having. If you are overwhelmed, if you are stressed, if you have fatigue, if you are feeling unstable, more often than not, again, identify those things. What is contributing to that? What is causing this level of stress? Is it the hours that you are doing? Is it the type of work that you're doing? Is it the fact that you don't have a lunch break and you just work through it? So identify what is the source of those stress feelings and then take time to detach yourself from the things that are causing the stress. If it's the long work hours, commit to shortening those hours, commit to saying whatever I can get done in those eight hours I'm doing and I'm taking a break. It might feel impossible, but we know in research that people that have less hours are sometimes more productive. And so it can happen. You just have to listen to your body. 
And so if you're now to the level where you have the chronic stress, fatigue, overwhelm, it is important that you seek help. Talk to a therapist, talk to your medical doctor, get support earlier in order to make sure that you don't get into these more chronic zones where you have more issues. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I have my own business. And there are times when I'm in a super busy period and I just fantasize about leaving it all behind. Like I'm going to quit working. (laughs) And then I tell my husband, I'm just going to stop working. And he kind of chuckles and he's like, yeah, okay, honey. Because he knows that that would never be something I did. But then I find that, okay, I step away from the project or I finish it. And then I really take time to recharge and do the things that I love, like traveling or spending time with friends and family. And that helps. And I know that time away or not working is a long-term solution. So I think it's important that, like you said, that there are things that you can do and not just step away from the work that you have, or that there are tools that you can bring out from your toolkit that will help you feel less overwhelmed. So that's great. Yes. Your body's just trying to inform you when you have those feelings, like I just want to walk away from it all. (laughs) Your body and brain is saying, I need a break. I need a break. So how can we support others who are experiencing burnout? Because I know that we all know someone who has this challenge. In Sweden, we actually call it walking into a wall. That's a diagnosis. Like people walk into the wall. They just can't, like you're stuck and you can't move. So what can we do to help those loved ones or friends and family who have walked into a wall? Mm, That is such a revealing phrase. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Create a space of safety and support. So you supporting them doesn't look like you telling them to quit their job, right? Mm -hmm. You supporting them is reminding them why they did it, why they committed to this passion. Why was it important to them? And also pair that with their need for rest. That's why you need to rest because this is so important to you. How about we schedule some massages together and we just go. Yeah. How about, you know what? Let me just watch the kids for you and you guys just relax tonight providing and coming alongside their rest is one of the most important parts of supporting someone in burnout because they may feel like there's no margin for them to relax. And so you create margin, you create space by doing that. Also encourage them to set limits. It could be a a challenge that you do together. Okay. All right. Eight hours. We got our eight hour block. And we're going to check in, make sure that we do that together, right? Encourage them to set limits to improve their productivity. I think there's some studies that talk about our brains having 90 minutes of attention capacity to a task. And then we have to have at least 15 minute break. Reminding them that there is an opportunity for them to accomplish the work and do it, but we got to work smarter. And so encouraging them to set those limits, check in on the self-care How are you taking care of yourself? Did you make that doctor's appointment? I know it feels like you don't have time. Let's look at our calendars together. So that accountability as their support person can be helpful to mitigate burnout. And then also just love them through the challenges. Just love them through it. Love them through the, as they set up a barricade for themselves and then they just blow past it. It's like, yeah, I worked 10 hours last night, you know, 
just love them through it and remind them it's always a good day to start over. I love that. Do you think that people, especially entrepreneurs, can be addicted to stress or the highs and lows of a stressful period? Because you're experiencing adrenaline, you go up and you go down. I don't know. You tell me you're yeah. an expert. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if they're addicted to the stress, but maybe the accomplishing of a task post-stress. So there may be stress associated with accomplishing a task, but there's also a thrill when you get over it. Mm-hmm. So a person definitely could be addicted to the thrill of being able to overcome that barrier, even though the odds were against them and they overcame that. That could be something you would have an affinity towards, especially if it goes well. When it goes well, we have that positive reinforcement that says, oh yeah, this is, this is exactly how I do it. Or people can believe that this is actually the way that they best work. Mm-hmm. Right. I hear that quite a bit. No, I'm good under pressure. Like yeah. there has to be high stakes in order for me to do it. And so they believe that that's a part of their personality or identity, which makes it something now that they must manufacture in order for it to work. Oh man. I can so relate to that. I do my <laughs> very best work when I'm like, it's 10 minutes to deadline and I get so much anxiety, but I just put myself, it's almost like I procrastinate to get to that point where I'm like, oh, the pressure is on, I have to deliver. And I hate being in that moment of high stress, but I've actually gotten much better. I try not to do it. I try to space out a project, make sure that I have plenty of time, but there is something about that intense pressure that makes you really deliver. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we just learn how to do it. We learn how to do it. So now it's a part of us. Well, thank you. I so appreciate your insight. I know that a lot of people will be able to relate. So thank you, Dr. Watson. My pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Not Talk About It, a podcast dedicated to normalizing discussions of trauma. Tell us what topic you'd like us to not talk about next. We'd love to hear from you email us at hello let's not talk about it.com and duh we'll keep your name and email confidential want to help us break the silence and normalize talking about trauma you can here's how like share and follow us on social share your feedback using the hashtag unshush subscribe rate and review our podcast so others can discover us too that's all for the let's not talk about it team We'll see you again next Wednesday with a new episode of the show. Here's something a lot of people don't talk about. You've got what it takes to survive and thrive. Keep up the good work. We believe in you. And let's talk about it.